Need to go to class. <laughs> First thing I noticed this evening when I got up here, y'all look like the same bunch that shit on Sunday mornings <laughs> that I've been looking at for a while. <laughs> so that's good. At least I know I'm in the same place. <laughs> y'all may be sitting somewhere different, but you look like the same faces anyway. And we're glad you're here this evening. We'll be looking at, from the Word of God, we'll be looking at one of the Psalms, and it's not 23. <laughs> I know some probably first thing come to mind was 23, but it's my favorite, and that's number one. The first one. When we begin looking at this psalm, one of the things that this psalm emphasizes, as we know the Word of God emphasizes, all the way from the beginning, and that is life is made up of rules. It's made up only of rules, it's made up of standards, by which from the beginning has been set into motion, and God has through those rules and standards, and we might even say in that respect, says this is the way I want mankind to live. I want him to follow these rules, I want him to follow these standards. God didn't set these up to make man miserable. He set up these rules and these standards because he wanted man to enjoy life to its fullest, but he wanted man to live right. He wanted man to live that would make his life better on this earth. So when we look at the beginning, for the period of time the earth was perfect was before man sinned. Man lived in the garden. He lived the way God intended for man to live as He created him. In the beginning, He told man, after He created him, what was you to do? First of all, was multiply and replenish the earth. And when in the garden was what? Simply, we would say, keep it up. Dress and keep it, as He called it. Take care of it. From it would sustain your, uh, your livelihood and sustain you for food and etc. So rules have always been part of us. As we go through the Bible, we see the rules more and more as they move forward through the patriarchal law, through the Mosaic law, and so forth. Rules and standards, because God says, these are necessary to help man live right. I want you to live right. I want you to be happy. But I want you to be walking the things which will make your life better. There's never been a law God has ever given that's impossible to keep. There's never been a law that he's ever given that would make you miserable or unhappy. It's always the opposite thereof. Now, could God have made laws and regulations that we've been impossible for us to follow? Yes, he could have. But he didn't do that. That's the thing we need to always keep in mind. He could have made it impossible to man to live up to these rules and standards, but God didn't do that. He loved, his, he loved the mankind He created, so the rules and standards are, uh, are all where everyone can uh, go through them and do them. So when we look at this this evening, there are right rules and there are wrong ones, we might say. 
in this psalm bears these things out. Let's listen to it as it reads. Blessed, he begins, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly should not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now notice this psalm, very first psalm, begins with this word called blessed. Now, we know this word and we hear it and we've heard it through the years from the what we call the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. This word blessed. This word means happy. And some translation do uh, translate the Beatitudes as happy is the man or happy is the one. And so there's nothing wrong with that because that is what the word means. But we must ask ourselves when we say that, what does that word defined happiness to be. Now, if you were to ask the world what happiness is, happiness is based on circumstances, based upon whether or not I've got uh, world, the, you know, a lot of the world's possessions or material things, money, uh, whatever other things that will make one happy. In the world standpoint, that's happiness. The prosperity, the good health, uh, a good job, family, those things to them in the back of their mind is all, and I can, I've got the ability to enjoy any pleasure I want that makes me happy. So that's the world's definition of happiness. The problem with that happiness is it don't last. It don't last because it's kind of like a roller coaster. You're happy, then you're not happy. You're happy, then you're not happy. <laughs> it's based on circumstances. As long as things are going well and the waters of life are smooth, we're happy. Let a good motorboat of trouble come flying through there and disturb those waters and cause waves, we're not happy. And then we have to wait for the water still, then we're happy. It's just up and down, up and down. Others look at it and say, I'm happy because I'm well off. Good health. What's wrong with that? Number one, you can lose the you can lose the wealth. You also can become sick. So you really can't say that is always happiness. But the world says it is. You know, as long as you have the money, but it, I say it's temporal. It only lasts so long; it's going to go away. Same thing with their health. We can be in good health today and be in bad health tomorrow. So we learn these kinds of happinesses, happiness or definition of happiness can be what we call destroyed. Happiness or blessedness that the Bible is speaking of and that the Word of God calls happiness is an inward peace and contentment. Now that's, it's hard to describe that. It's hard to really put it into words. But it is a person who knows from the Word of God from the way they look at their lives as they mirror it against the Word of God, that their life is at peace 
and their life is at contentment because that life is following the Word of God. Now that is true happiness. That happiness is stable. No matter if the waters are rough and beating and there's waves everywhere, you're still stable. Because you know when you go through those times and you say, God, I need help, hold my hand, help me through this, show me the way, He will do that and get you through it. So you know no matter what happens, life will always still remain stable no matter if waters are smooth or they're choppy. There's security of knowing that, you know, if you look at it this way as, as some used to say, I'm a majority because it's me and God together and who can beat us? And that is an attitude of being, I've got God on my side, which means I have His ability and His power. What can, that's the security of knowing that God will take care of us. We'll go through the hard times, but we know that we'll be stable and we know that we'll be secure in what happens around us. And that comes from the fact of the assurance that we're walking in the eyes of God. So blessedness belongs, as the writer begins, blessed is a man who is a godly man. Because he calls it walking not in the counsel of the God, so he just turned it opposite. He is a godly man. One who is truly happy. But let's look at some things this evening which goes along with that word blessed. Number one, he's blessed because he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, that means simply he doesn't follow the advice of the ungodly. He doesn't follow their guidance. Why? For one reason, he knows that the ungodly has no respect for God and His Word, has no respect for anything that is sacred. He lives his life for the moment. He goes wherever his lust and desires takes him at the moment. And we know as God's children, we have been told by God and we remind each other. We have the right to ask for advice. You know, there's times we need advice. We need help. Uh, how to do something. Uh, is Would this be the best way to go to do this? Or the best way to handle something? Or even advice if we're taking a trip, which is the best way to go to get there? Uh, as simple as that, there's all kinds of ways we can ask for advice. But still, we have to be careful to whom we are asking that advice. That's what he's talking about here. He's simply saying to a blessed person is one who does not go to an ungodly person to ask them advice on how to live their lives how to help them solve some problems they're facing in life because the ungodly person just, their advice is for the moment. Well, what, what, what's wrong? Well, let's see what we need to make you happy. That's it. And it happens, as we said, it lasts for a moment and it goes away. Because he knows, a godly person will not say because he knows the ungodly is not going to lead them closer to God in their advice or help them in that their relationship with God. Is going to push him further and further away. So he says, I don't want that because I know what happens in that respect. 
you know, they're not going to put, the worldly person don't put his trust in God. And when they give advice, it's based on, like I said, whatever's going on at the moment or what will make you happy for the moment to get you through this. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly. He wants us to be led deeper and deeper into his righteous life, not deeper and deeper into sin. So he stays away from that. Then he says that he will not stand in the way of sinners. Now, this does not mean that he will oppose the way of sinners. That's not what that verse is saying. And I have heard it interpreted that way. Oh, see, you're not allowed to tell me what I can and can't do. You can't, what's that, oh, what's that word they use now? Judge me. <laughs> and the other word that goes with it is the word tolerant. I love that one. That's heard, that's heard a lot, tolerant. So we cannot judge, we cannot tolerate. Is that what the writer here, no. He's not saying that, you know, you can't oppose the sinner. He's simply saying he's not going to go down the path of the sinner, but he's going to oppose him. What is it that Christ told us in the summation? Love the sinner, but what? Hate the sin. So that's exactly what he's saying here. We're not, we have, we're going to oppose them. Of course, nowadays you're not allowed to do that. You know, you know, you can't, uh, you can't pose anything. Everybody has their right. We've got to be tolerant. So the right is not saying, not opposing. He will do so. It simply means he will do what? Not travel the same path of the sinner. In other words, he will reach out to pull him out of that and he worked very diligently, if all possible, to retrieve him from a life of sin but he will not get into it with him and go down that same path. He's careful because of his companions, of his friends, and those he associates with generally. Why? Because they can influence you to go down the bad path. We've, everybody has here seen it happen at different, to different people over the years. It will happen. That influence is so great it can take a good child of God and destroy him. So he's not opposed to it. He just, he's opposed to it, but he does not follow carefully to his companion friend because he knows sin's a transgression of the law. He knows that. That's the reason why he doesn't want to associate with those people because he knows what might happen. He don't want to take that chance of associating with them, you know, in the sense of going, doing what they're doing because he knows what it'll do to his Christian life. All way he does things, he will associate and he will maintain contact with sinners for one reason only. To do what? To pull them out. To pull them out. Not to get in the ditch with them. To pull them out of the ditch. And here's the thing a wise child of God to do. When he's prohibited from doing that, when he is not allowed or prohibited from being able to help to pull him out, walks away. Why? Because he knows if he keeps on, he could very well be pulled into it with him. So he stays away. So he's blessed is a man who, what? Not take counsel of the ungodly, does not get in the way of sinners. That is, get into, into living their lifestyle. Next one is that he will not sit in, the, sit in the seat of the scornful. This word used here for the moment is kind of mild uh, in the fact of just the word scorn, because a lot of times we think of scorn is, oh, don't get on, you know, your bad side of him. You'll find out how he, he'll scorn what he'll do to you. It's talking about anger in some cases, most cases, but in this case, it is simply talks someone who's way beyond being ungodly 
and a sinner. This is the person who has gone to what we would call to the all the way to the full sin of apostasy and open rebellion against God. We've done gone past being ungodly. There's a chance to pull them out. We've gone past the point of a sinner because we can pull them out. We're dealing with somebody now who is in hardcore rebellion against God. Plain, pure, and simple. And when we look at it, it is, when we think of scorning God, it's no less damaging in David's day as this song was written as it is in our own day in the 21st century. Because we look at how people defile God and defile His Word. There's many ways in which they do it. We call it abuse it, misuse it, or ignore it. It's usually the three words we tend to put with it. But even though in that we find that they use the teaching of the Bible as it were within itself to destroy its integrity, its validity. We call it finding errors, finding contradictions, uh, finding that, oh, God said this over here, but look over here, he told you you could do it over here, but he told you you could do it over here, so there's the contradiction. All kinds of things you can think of they come up with is a means to destroy the validity of the Word of God. Because if they can destroy that, then they've got you. That's it. You're done. Once that happens, you're on their road to destruction. They will rest it, as we know, as Paul, as Peter said that had been done to Paul, some of Paul's scriptures had been rested or twisted to make it say what they want it to say. We are in a time now that we've seen that becoming a more and more reality than we've ever had before, where the scriptures are being twisted to defend, uphold, or promote something, you know, now in our day and time. So we know it's been twisted to prove something. They will even, we've even seen them and they will continue to do it to cite scripture, to silence it. (laughs) Find a way to shut up the word of God by using it within itself to shut it up. To get rid of it. Find ridicule and whatever. Uh, We look at even some who are scorners of of God and of his word that will look, uh, appear to be a, a loving the word of God and they appear to be adherent to it in order to try to draw you into their way of thinking. And they will continue to do that as long as they're able to. But when someone turns against them and shows them that the Scripture says this, not that, then they go in full rebellion against you as well. It's trying to be intolerant or whatever. We know that sin is glamorized today. Faith is looked upon as being, you know, called being too intellectual and, and being really and being ridiculed. I can't believe that's, but people doing that, faith is being intellectual. You're not running by your emotions, you're not running by your feelings, you're not running by what's the whim of the moment. You're actually, actually trying to live a life according to some rules. Oops, we can't do that no more, can we? According to the world today in which we live in. We look at articles, we look at books, we look at TV today versus years ago, and it just absolutely boggles your mind. Most of us can remember when television went off around midnight, don't we? There was no such thing as 24-hour television. It went off at midnight. What happened when they closed out of a night at midnight? A couple of, a lot, not every station did it, but a lot of them always played the national anthem. Remember that? And some stations would even close with usually the Lord's Prayer when they went off the air. 
Of course, we all remember the famous statement that most stations, especially around here, said, it's 11 o'clock. Do you know where you're... <laughs> hey, good, you remember. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah, they did. They ask you, where, do you know where your children are? Why? Because America had a different mindset. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. But that was in that day. When it went off the air, was asking that, the Star Spangled Banner was played not only when it went off, but when the station come on in the morning, it also played the Star Spangled Banner. And sometimes it either opened, some opened with prayer and with scripture reading. Yeah. Yeah. It actually happened. <laughs> So um, those days are gone. When the, even TV or America had a respect for God, country, <laughs> and for just each other. We live back in those days, you could leave your keys in the switch of your car, and guess what? You come back, where's your car? It's still there. You could walk off and be gone for a week in a vacation, leave your house unlocked, come back home, and what? Your house is still there. And what's inside is what? Still there. You don't get out of your car now at all without making sure you hear the horn blow or the little chirp chirp to make sure you've locked it. Or you may turn around and pull the door handle just to make sure. You know, we don't do it anymore. Look how far we have gone from one extreme to the other in just in our lifetime. When we can remember these things happening on television as it went off and came on, now where it's 24 hours and it's mostly what? Garbage. Is not religion made fun of? Yes. Even a show that is supposed to have a, when I say religious background, I mean it's supposed to be, whether it's a sitcom or whether it's a serious thing, and it's supposed to be a preacher and his family or whatever it may be, it's still, the, what is it? Religion is ridiculed. Made fun of, belittled, joked about, not taken seriously. So we live in this, this is part of this postmodern world we're living in. Live, let live, um, you know, tolerant of everything and anything that comes along. You're not allowed to condemn. You're not allowed to say anything against something or someone. None of these things are allowed anymore. And the whole point is what? It pervert, it's perverting the truth, and it is most of all destroying the truth. Now, this is what the scornful are capable of doing. They are, they are living a life that is hostile to everything that is godly and right. And when we look at our nation now, and those of us who remember back when we really studied history in school, what did our history teachers tell us in world history? What caused the collapse of the Roman Empire? Internal corruption. Which led to it being defeated and destroyed. So what caused this mighty empire that stood for over nearly 400 years, who kept the world at peace, who had the best times of trade and commerce of that day and time, and people made money, you know, we might say hand to a fist in that era, what caused that empire to collapse? First of all, it was internal corruption. 
which led to its weakness so the nations around it finally killed her. You know, it's just, just what happened. And so you look at our nation today and you begin to think the same thing. Somehow we ain't caught on to history. Uh-huh. I think it's boiled down to pretty ready, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah, the internal corruption of those things stirred in with everything else. Yeah, absolutely caused it to collapse. And like I said, from its internal corruption and collapse, like I said, it weakened it to the point that it couldn't defend itself. And the nations around it finally destroyed it. And the world lived in 400 years of what we call the Dark Ages. Scornful. This is what happens when Satan has his army and as they tighten the grip on the hearts of so many, this is what happens. This is how deadly scornful can be in their rebellion against God and against His Word. And you look at it, what's sad, it's only as an overall look of things, it is a minority of people who are doing it, but yet they're able to squawk louder than the majority. Because when the majority tries to speak, the minority shuts them up. So we have a hard time. So we look at what David said here, and this was written hundreds of years ago, and you look at it and go, wow, David must have been talking about the 21st century, back in the B.C. times. Because he's talking about the same thing going on now. The blessed and the godly man's not going to find himself in this number. In spite of the fact that he's ridiculed, in spite of the fact that he's hunted down, in spite of the fact that the world is hostile to his convictions, that the Word of God is still right, it is still the best way in which to live, will not allow himself to be swerved or turned from that, in this world is a hard fight. But a child of God who's blessed, that is, who's happy to be a follower of God, will do this. He will fight for the cause of Christ. He will fight in spite of what's happened because he knows that this world was built upon the fact that God created it. God set everything in motion, set all the rules and standards in motion, and he knows from the beginning to now they still work, they're still right, and life is far better when we follow them. And he will not give up no matter what. That's what makes him happy. But then the fourth thing he talks about is positive. The godly man is what we call delights in the Word of God. This is a man which we would is tied to blessed in the fact that his he looks at God's Word and says, no matter what, I delight in His law, I read His law, I study His law, I want to live by His law. I delight in the fact that God allows me to live in His law as His child, and I want to do everything I can to follow Him the best I possibly can. And He delights in the fact that He's able to do so. That God has allowed Him to, and then He delights not only in His heart, but His life outwardly is a living example that He delights in the fact that He lives in the law of God. Now, He knows, He knows that God's law regulates. He also knows God's law at times do demand things of Him. He knows that. But in spite of the fact that He knows that, and He knows there is a yoke and a burden involved in following the Lord, He looks at that and says, 
I know there's rules, there's regulations God expects of me. I know there's a yoke to be carried as I follow Him. That burden I must bear. But what does my Lord tell me? My yoke is compared to what? To the world. My yoke is easy. My burden is light in comparison. Why? The difference being the world don't care how burdened down you are. If you're down to your knees, it don't care. But the difference is, when we have burdens as a child of God, the difference is the Lord helps us. Helps us carry them. Helps us bear the burdens. And so not only are we, debat, we are told by Paul in Galatians two things. We are to help one another bear their burdens. And we are to what? Bear our own burdens. You know, there's things that we have to do ourselves. But yet, in spite of all of that, the man who delights in the law of God says simply and rejoices in the fact that I'm following my God. I'm thankful to follow my God. I want to follow my God. I do not want to do any, I try my best not to do anything to disappoint me. Why? Because the man who delights in the law of God knows one thing. I can't do this by myself. Is that what Jeremiah told us in 10.23? It's not a man who walks and directs steps because man can't do it. <laughs> you know, he just, he's liable to wander everywhere, you know, and be worse than trying to follow a, a snake crooked through, going through a desert. You know, he just can't do it. He knows that. So his delight is the fact, knowing that I cannot direct my own steps, but I know one thing. If I follow God, follow His guidance, live to His Word, and I look at His Word and apply it to my life every day, I look, I keep myself under constant self-examination and I bow to any time that God corrects me and make any decision I make, I make it in the light of God's law. In other words, looking at standpoint, we remember as James looks at it in the fact if the Lord wills, if it is the Lord's right, we will carry out thus and so. He delights in the fact that this is the way he wants to live and he loves to. It's just a joy to him to wake up every morning saying, thank you, Lord, for the night's rest and thank you for the new day. And at the end of the day, thank you that I made it through this day. And on and on every day. Because he wants to live in God's Word. It's a constant thing with him. Then, the writer says, he's like a tree. Now notice something about this tree. This tree didn't pop up where it is wild by accident or chance, a bird dropping seed somewhere along the way, or the wind blowing the seed off somewhere and the fleet fell on this particular place in the ground and it accidentally came up a walnut tree or whatever. It didn't happen. What does the writer say? That tree was what? Planted. Planted. When we use the word planted, Especially in the avenue of a garden. What are we telling? What are we saying? I planted. That is, I put in my garden the tomatoes, the green beans, the okra, the cauliflower, the lettuce, the tomatoes. I planted them. My garden didn't come up wild. And I just went out there one day and planted up and said, Lord, take care of it. Whatever you plant, I'll let. No. He says, I planted a row of this or a row of that or so forth. Planted means it had a purpose and a reason. So when you plant gardens, you put in the vegetables that you want. They're planted for a reason. These are the ones I want to grow because these are the ones my family will eat. And we know we will. That's why I planted them. But not, so isn't that what it is? With the, we don't become a child of God accidentally, do we? Mm-mm. 
You wouldn't sit somewhere in the pew and all of a sudden, well, I feel saved all of a sudden. No, it don't happen that way. You planned to become a child of God, do you not? Yes. The planning is the fact that you listen to God's Word, the faith develops, etc., etc., to what? That is what happened last Sunday night. You make the decision, I want to be a child of God. I want to be planted. Notice this tree. Not only has been planted, but David says, or whoever the writer is, is this. He's planted near nourishment. In this case, he's planted by where? The rivers, the waters. He's planted by nourishment. Where does a child of God plant their life? Here's the nourishment. So you plant your life, as it were, within the word, by the Word of God. Why? Because you want that tree planted. It's like your garden when you plant. You want that garden to what? To grow. Child of God who wants to grow will plant himself by the nourishment to do what? To grow spiritually. Is that not what Paul was talking in Galatians 5 about what we call the fruits of the Spirit? That is, things which are evidences that you are growing. Is that not what Peter meant by the Christian graces of 2 Peter chapter 1? These things which causes us to do what? To grow. These are the things you plant in, within yourself to grow as a child of God. Now, do you ever stop growing? No. The day you stop growing is the day you breathe your last breath and you leave this earth in death. So notice the tree is not wild, it is planted. It was put there for a purpose and a reason. We understand that in the real world of planting trees in our yard or gardens. Is it not the same thing true with a child of God in his life? Yes, he's planted. He's a child of God for a purpose and a reason. He grows spiritually. As he says, his leaf does not wither. There's what we would call constant life in him. You know, he constantly is growing. He enjoys and he continues to prosper. So that's what he's saying. Then he says... After being planted, then he compares the ungodly and the godly with wheat and chaff. We all understand this one very well. Even as we read from the Old Testament and the New Testament about wheat and chaff, as they talk about throwing it up in the air and letting the wind blow the chaff away and the wheat falls back down to the ground, it's still true in the 21st century. That hasn't really changed. That's one of the best ways to get rid of it, to separate the two. Why does he do that? He says, I'm separating because I want, I want everyone to understand this is what a blessed and a godly man is. This is the one who's planted. He's like wheat. He has a reason. He has a purpose. And he try, and that individual will do everything he can in his life to do what? To keep him separated from the chaff. Which is not good. What happens when the chaff stays in the wheat? It's ruined, didn't it? So if the world stays in the Christian, you know the answer to that one as well. It's the same thing. So we've got to separate them. And he says the chaff is good for what? To be blown away. There's no use for it. There's not anything good you can do with it. So it's just be work to do what? To blow it away. 
That's all it's good for. Blow it away. What is he simply saying? Here in this little short little six verses, he's saying there's two destinies in life. One is heaven. The other is hell. That's all it's simply telling us. Though he does it in a, in a, in a different way than we might think of in others, but he's still saying the same thing. There's two ways. The way to heaven and the way of eternal destruction. So that's what he's telling us in that psalm. Is it time for class to come back? <laughs> Getting about that time anyway, isn't it? Okay, and there goes Caddy's going. <laughs> She'll be the whistleblower tonight. <laughs> what was your uh, invitation again, Joe? Was it 207? 207. 207. Okay. Have that and ready. Only thing we knew from Sunday was what he had, he had got to go home, and it was what a callus that they had to lance basically, and yeah. I think some of the old country people used to call that years ago. What was it? A carbuncle? Anybody remember that word? <laughs> yeah, that's an old that's an old expression, an old saying. <laughs> that eight, that dates us, don't it? <laughs> Okay. Oh, you got your eye on them? 